where did Sam and FDX come from after all? Like, seems like they just came out of nowhere, actually. And were suddenly a really important big exchange. So it looks like Alameda Research was founded in 2017 by SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, everybody just calls him SBF for short. We've called him other things. And this is a market-making hedge fund. So they do trading, they do market-making, which means if you're a new scam coin project, you give Alameda Research a bunch of your coins and they start to create places where people can buy and sell them and they support that activity and try to arbitrage the price, which creates yeah. markets that people feel comfortable trading in. Uh, I think SBF rose to prominence with his arbitrage trade on what was called in the kimchi premium, which were higher prices in Bitcoin for some Asian countries. So that's how Alameda got a lot of its initial funding. And it just sort of became more and more influential as time went on. And then in May of 2019, FTX was founded by SBF as a centralized exchange that specialized in derivatives and leveraged products. That was their big thing, really pitched towards the pros in crypto initially. And FTX operated first in Hong Kong and then the British Virgin Islands. So they're all about regulatory arbitrage to enable them to do things that would be illegal in the United States. And just a note on the kimchi premium. The kimchi premium means selling crypto into countries with capital controls like Japan and South Korea. Japan might ha not have official capital controls, but getting banking there was very hard. And so Alameda's core technology is actually legacy finance connections. Sam Bankman-Fried comes out of Jane Street Capital, which is a well-known trading firm on Wall Street, or maybe from Boston, I'm, I'm not sure. And the people on the Alameda Research and then the FTX team, they're all Ivy Leaguers. So these are not scrappy crypto anarchists who've been in the space a long time. They show up in 2017 and they start applying traditional finance connections and techniques to crypto markets and they make a bundle quickly. Yeah. And it's a group in their early 20s. They're mobile. They're moving around. And then in 2019, they catch the eye of Binance and CZ. And Binance makes a strategic investment into FTX. Welcomed by SBF, who publicly says, quote, the investment will help accelerate the growth of FTX with support and strategic advisories from Binance while FTX maintains its independent operation. And then a couple years later, in 2021, Binance sells its FTX equity in exchange for a big bag of FTT tokens and some USD. They got $2.1 billion worth of FTT. That's the FTX token. Totally made up token by FTX. Yep. Let's just zoom back to why does Alameda Research and SPF want to create an exchange in 2019? And the answer was that Alameda Research Research wanted a place to trade. And so if you can think of something that has more conflict of interest than a hedge fund trading on an exchange that it basically owns, even though these are supposedly legal separate entities, the CEO of Alameda Research literally lived with Sam Bankman-Fried in the Bahamas in the same penthouse apartment. So that doesn't seem like a lot of separation there. This is deeply problematic if you are going to do trading on FTX because that means there's someone trading against you who has access to the exchange backend and can literally see all of your trades and everything you're doing. Doesn't sound very fair. Doesn't sound very decentralized. Doesn't sound very Bitcoin ethics, in my opinion. And then as things progressed, uh, it seems like the kind of bad blood between Binance and FTX just went out for public display in front of all of us. And this is where we kind of move forward to this last week, which is early November 2022. Binance began begins to 
exit very publicly from their position in FTT. Caroline, who runs Alameda Research, offers to buy all of their position at $22 a token. Which is an interesting number and also interesting to just say that on Twitter. Right. It was all done out in the open. And so they basically signal that they're going to be the buyer of last resort, which all of this, plus the leaking of a balance sheet, which was likely from Binance through Coindesk, leads to a bankrupt. Not to get too stuck on the past. Why did Binance invest in FTX? Why would they invest in a rival exchange? I think that there probably is some truth to SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried, being a pretty competent trader initially in the Alameda research part of his career. I think they did make bank. And I think that there was a period where people thought he was an up-and-comer and he was going to do big things. And so it made sense to be a part of that, even for... CZ, the owner of Binance. Well, and as we're learning, which we always seem to do after these crashes, SPF seems to be, like you touched on, quite well connected. So perhaps CZ was aware of those connections. He knew about SPF's budgeting relationship with Gary Gensler. He knew about the connections with the SEC. Perhaps he thought this is a guy that we should be aligning with for political reasons. He's also a family friend of Elizabeth Warren, who is a notorious anti-crypto U.S. senator. There does seem to be some sort of connection there, too, because now I've seen multiple outlets report this morning that some of the regulation that SBF was working on does seem to be proceeding. Even though FTX just completely wiped out and crashed, it looks like the regulation that SBF inspired is actually getting some traction, bipartisan trans- uh, two different U.S. senators, Republican and Democrat, that want to proceed. And I do think that leads some credence to the rumors that CZ was trying to essentially take action while there was vulnerability in FTX to prevent FTX from building a regulatory moat around them- themselves. That's the the story I've heard too, that SBF used CZ and Binance to get a leg up. And then he started throwing money around Washington, doing a lot of vanity projects, FTX Arena in Miami, just crazy amounts of money. And what he's actually doing is trying to create a regulatory moat around FTX that would have excluded Binance, which was one of his early supporters. And CZ correctly views this as a stab in the back. And this leads leads to CZ taking action. And there are two things that happen next, which lead to the events of this week, which is FTX's and Alameda Research and FTX US, which are three separate companies, Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Yeah, which is interesting. Only so much in that Sam kept saying FTX US is fine for the days on Twitter. And then this morning, oh, turns out actually we're doing bankruptcy over there as well. The theme is Sam Bankman-Fried was a complete and utter fraud, a total liar. He had this whole persona as a crypto trader savant. He tried to look very non-threatening and positive. And in the end, it was probably all just a big facade for your typical short-term thinking inept scammer, basically. I think Lynn Alden had a great, great summary. She says, imagine McDonald's makes its own money. Let's call them clown bucks. Keeps most of it, then sells some of it to the market. McDonald's then uses the remaining clown bucks as collateral for actual loans. But then people remember clown bucks aren't real. And then Starbucks comes along and market sells the clown bucks they were holding while reminding the market that clown bucks aren't really a thing. McDonald's balance sheet is trashed with their clown bucks wiped out. That's what happened with FTX. And this is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, November 11th, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad and I'm here as always with... It's me, it's Chris, popping the popcorn over here. Hey everybody, welcome back. We're going to try and get this one out quickly because 
because I'm sure there'll be more news. So we don't want our breakdown of FTX to seem too stale. But as anyone who's been following Bitcoin news knows, the biggest news is that FTX, which I think was the, was it the third largest offshore exchange? It was in the top five, definitely. Yeah, that's what they say is number three. Yeah. Over the weekend, they halted withdrawals, which when they start gating customer withdrawals, that lets you know that they're insolvent. And this was precipitated by a leak last week, which I saw just after we recorded. It was so frustrating of a leak of the Alameda Research balance sheet. And Alameda Research was holding a lot of these clown bucks or FTT tokens that Lynn Alden was was describing. And that was very puzzling because if the majority of their collateral is a made-up token, then they have a pretty weak balance sheet. And then it got worse because it turned out that that made-up balance sheet collateral was a loan from FTX denominated in dollars and that FTX had actually used customer funds to collateralize that loan. And so they've mixed customer funds with business money with another business that Sam Bankman-Fried owns and lied about it. And so their exchange is insolvent. People try to withdraw funds. And now today, a week later, all three entities related to FTX are bankrupt. And the key of what you said in there, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, is because they used their customer deposits as collateral when there was essentially a bank run due to the leak of the balance sheet, their collateral just dropped in value like a rock. Right. And this means that FTX was not a traditional crypto exchange, by by which I mean a business model that takes your Bitcoin and then holds it for you and uses it to buy and sell other assets and then charges you small fees on every transaction because a exchange is a bank. Well, it's better than a bank theoretically because it's supposed to be fully collateralized. So it's like a bank with zero rehypothecation. But what FTX actually was, was a hidden hedge fund. And if you deposited money on FTX, it turns out that you are actually loaning that money to FTX, not receiving any yield on that. And then they were speculating on it. And it kind of explains how FTX and Alameda got so big because all of those customer deposits were actually loans that they could use to lever up and invest in other projects, which all turned out to be illiquid altcoins that don't really help them in a liquidity crunch when everyone discovers that they're insolvent. And there's so many players that are connected to FTX. This is perhaps bigger than Luna and Celsius. I mean, it is absolutely not perhaps. And that seemed like such a big deal just a few months ago. Um, These bear markets really bring remarkable, remarkable discoveries. And I've just discovered that we didn't introduce the article. So our pre-show and initial intro is all about this FTX meltdown. But we will also cover how Google is trying to promote Solana, which interestingly enough is another Sam Bankman-Fried supported project. So that's going to go terribly, I suspect. We also have a slightly sad story, kind of ridiculous about the greatest Bitcoin hacker you never heard of and his tragic end or tragic consequences so far. He's still alive. Hopefully he makes it through this. We have our yearly Bitcoin is dead article. It's pretty bad, but we'll debunk it point by point just just so that's on the record. In economics, global central bankers are really not getting the message not to fight the Fed. It's pretty funny that global monetary policy is decoupling. This is so bullish for Bitcoin and so 
bearish for literally everything else. In tokenomics, in the subject of crypto crashes, we have Lynn Alden's classic piece, Digital Alchemy, that explains the mechanics of crypto Ponzi schemes. I think that's a good thing to review and something to have under your belt when someone pitches you a dubious altcoin project. We also have Arthur Hayes' take on the FTX meltdown. I don't think it's his best work, but there are some pretty choice quotes in there that we'll laugh about. In Bitcoin education, I think we need to do self-custody again because the sane thing to do right now is to get your coins off any custodian. You need to do that right now because contagion is spreading. We don't know who's solvent, but if you self-custody your Bitcoin, you don't care. That's Bitcoin's killer app. It's self-custody. And if you're not doing it, you're using Bitcoin wrong. We also have a piece on Lightning wallets and their trade-offs, which is for a friend of the show, Crypto Kyle, who sent a message saying, are there any Lightning wallets that aren't total crap? And I struggled for a moment and then had to send him an entire article. Then we'll have some show feedback and boosts. So it's a pretty big episode. Pew, pew, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot going on. What else do we need to cover with FTX? They're insolvent. Sam Bankman-Fried is revealed to be a total fraud, a a man driven entirely by hubris who had a poor grasp of just financial fundamentals, let alone Bitcoin fundamentals, and yet was very successful as a specific kind of financial engineer slash trader. So I think this is part of the theme of Bitcoin being a weapon against hubris. Anyone who thinks they're smarter than Bitcoin, smarter than the crowd, they just get knocked down. And I think there's a lesson to be had here that the number three exchange, who I think a week ago, people would have thought was untouchable, that was going to be one of the next large companies. I mean, they own a stadium, right? They hired Larry David to do a Super Bowl commercial. I think we shouldn't gloss over the scale of which the expectations were for this company. And in a matter of about 24 hours, they were completely wiped out. And they went from one of the richest companies in the world to owing money. I think that's a remarkable lesson that we just went through there. And it has to be drilled into us over and over again. Doesn't matter how big these companies are. When they base things on a scam token and that whole house is built around their own money that they're printing, it inevitably collapses. And it just happens over and over and over again. And we just had one of the largest examples ever. And I don't think anything is immune from this problem that leverages this type of technique and these tactics. And um, I don't think anybody is shocked by what happened that has been listening to this show. But I think the people who have been shocked are the people that are staking their Ethereum or they're, you know, putting their Solana on FTX or they're they're doing whatever they're doing. Like these people that just think that, uh, you know, there's other second tiers to Bitcoin. Uh, I think they're learning very hard lessons this week. And FTX was one of the biggest shops. And FTX even kind of pitched themselves on, well, we only list the premium cryptos. We don't, we don't just list any crypto. And they had that whole air about them. And then here we are. Which was provably false because they existed in the Bahamas specifically so they could do things that U.S. regulators would give them crap about, like list really garbage tokens. Now, I just want to make it clear that I think there is a category error when we say FTX and Bitcoin in the same sentence. FTX was 
was a centralized exchange, essentially a type of traditional finance bank. What's impressive, or quote-unquote was impressive about FTX, or valuable, maybe is a better word, was that they had pipes from the traditional financial system that plugged them into the dollar-based petrodollar, euro-dollar financial system. That was the valuable thing about them. Anyone can run a Bitcoin node. Anyone can run, if they have enough money and time, an Ethereum node. But what was value and proprietary is connecting blockchain infrastructure with traditional finance. And that's a bank. That's a traditional financial type institution. And so FTX failing is not a story so much about quote unquote crypto. It's a story about the trust required to make every financial institution that is standard today work. Your bank, your brokerage account, your 401k provider, they are in the same category as FTX. And they are likely better run with less fraud. But you're trusting that's the case. And we can't verify that. It is a system based entirely on trust. My last thoughts um, is just every time this happens, it happened with Celsius, it happened with Luna, uh, we discover all of this extremely incriminating evidence that was just beneath the surface, but nobody was talking about. In September of 2022, Fortune put SBF on their cover with the subheadline, the next Warren Buffett, the 30-year-old billionaire Sam Bankman-Fried is betting big on crypto in a moment of crisis. He could build an empire like the Oracle of Omaha or crash and burn. Well, he certainly did crash. And, burn. and I think it's just as soon as it, Fortune, he was the cover focus of Fortune magazine. And yet all of these shady connections, the fact that he was sleeping with most of the executives at FTX and living with them as roommates, that wasn't being discussed. All these crazy things. And you look back now during the Twitter stuff and you realize SBF was just throwing money around like crazy. He spent millions of dollars on different politicians, $4 million on one particular fund. He was offering somewhere between 3 and $10 billion to Elon Musk to go in on the Twitter deal. That's a big range. Somewhere between three and $10 billion. That's a pretty big range. It's pretty casual. And what was he thinking if he knew he was insolvent? Because all of these things, investing in politicians, investing in Twitter with Elon Musk, he bought a $500 million stake in Robinhood. These are illiquid investments. You only make illiquid investments when you have enough cash to cover your short-term liabilities. And all of his businesses are bankrupt today because they did not have enough short-term cash to cover their liabilities. That's insolvency. And as you're insolvent for longer, you eventually go bankrupt. That seems to be how CZ knew blood was in the water, is it looks like just even like a week before all this came out. So like a week ago, as we record, Sam was looking to raise millions of dollars. He was going around looking for finance. Well, no, billions. He needed to raise $8 billion, which is preposterous amount of money, especially in a crypto bear market. And of course, because finance is in that market, and this is always how it works, these other CEOs, when you go look to raise funds, the other CEOs find out. I've I've seen it happen. It's because they all talk to the same investors. They're all part of the same social network. And so CZ finds out. He realizes that means FTX is in a weak spot and he strikes. They leak the balance sheet of Alameda Research. People start freaking out. They draw the connections. A bank run ensues. Other than the drama of the past week, I think that there are kind of two interesting details. One is why FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried were sniffing around, bailing out 
about all of the crypto lenders who were destroyed by the Celsius three arrows debacle. The other is how proof of stake ties in with this. Yes, absolutely. I suspect looking back at it, do you think uh, Sam was trying to bail them out because if they went down, they would take out FTT and then them? I think it was Alameda. Ah. From what I've read, it seems that Alameda basically went bankrupt at the same time as Three Arrows Capital because they weren't smart. They weren't hedged. There's audio of Alameda traders talking about how they don't even use basic math. They're just going leverage long and you have to be comfortable with risk. And spoiler alert, Arthur Hayes piece, the only good part of it really is that he has a screenshot of a tweet from the Alameda CEO, Caroline, who allegedly used to date SBF. So that's a conflict right there. Talking about how great doing methamphetamine is and it just makes you so smart. And this was from April of 2021. So the CEO of Alameda, which was a $16 billion hedge fund, is talking about doing drugs on Twitter while she was in Hong Kong, which is a place where the penalty for drug possession is death. So... It's just shocking. So I think that SBF trying to bail out BlockFi, which, by the way, has gone insolvent again and has halted withdrawals again. So again, sorry, I said again too many times. You need to get assets off of custodians. That's the big takeaway. But I think SBF was trying to cover the insolvency of Alameda by trying to keep these crypto lenders afloat so that when they blew up, it didn't also reveal the holes in Alameda's balance sheet somehow. I'm not sure about the mechanics of that, but it's it kind of makes sense because when Voyager, which was another lending platform like BlockFi and BlockFi went bankrupt, SBF was sniffing around trying to bail them out. You know, their customer list is so valuable. We'll just turn them into FTX customers. And I feel like you and I were scratching our heads saying, is it though? I mean, all the people who got wrecked, you get to add them as customers on FTX. How much money are you going to get out of them? They're, they've already been wrecked. None of it added up. It never added up. It's very suspicious. I think you might be onto something there. It's got to be connected with Alameda. They were they were trying to pretend like they were a market maker. They were probably involved with all of these companies. The fact that they went insolvent or bankrupt around the same time Three Arrows did is probably not a coincidence. <laughs> and then the fact that Sam was looking for billions. Yeah. It's sort of all obvious now. Um, and it's it's really easy to come out here and be like, well, we told you so. Uh, but you know, there's there are people that I, I do want to reflect on the mo- on a moment here that there are people that probably lost some funds they're listening and I, I do feel bad that does that does suck but this is the medicine i think we needed to swallow now it is much better for this to have happened during a bear market when things are already wrecked than during a bull run when perhaps potentially a million more customers were would be affected by this a bull run would have papered over all of these losses and they could have kept the fraud going longer so right Negative or positive, depending on how much money you lost in this crisis. Well, you know, we just see it happen over and over again, Dad. My thought is, is now it's these are inevitable and it just would have been worse. Um, And I look at Ethereum and I think, all right, well, now I really believe it's just a matter of when, not yet. Which brings us to the problem of staking. How does this feature with the FTX crash? And the answer is that protocols that require staking encourage centralization. We've seen that on Ethereum already after 
after they moved to proof of stake. The MevWatch tool was counting OFAC compliant blocks. And I haven't checked, but I think it's about 100% now. So that means that there is censorship on Ethereum and proof of stake drove Ethereum consensus into a completely centralized model. This also centralizes custody because the largest validators of the new proof of stake chain are companies that custody your Ethereum and stake it for you and give you a derivative token. You know, this model of getting an Ethereum derivative when you custody, when you stake your Ethereum, this literally breaks the security assumptions around proof of stake. Because the whole point of proof of stake is that it's costly because you have to lock up your funds. Well, if you lock up your fund, your Ethereum and you get staked Ethereum token and it's basically the same price, guess what? Staking is now costless until there's a crisis and you can't unstake and the staked Ethereum token depegs from the staked Ethereum, which has happened. So that's an entire thing that's about to blow up. But staking drives people to custody their funds so that they can participate in staking yields. And I don't think that people who hold coins that use staking are being stupid here. I think it's stupid to hold those coins. But actually, if staking is how new coins are generated, then you are being diluted if you're not staking. You are being inflated away. And what do we see in the fiat system? As people's savings are being inflated away, they run into risky assets that promise yield, and they always take more yield, uh, as much yield as possible, and more risk than they realize they were taking. And that's the exact same model with proof of stake. And so I would argue that proof of stake is a step backwards. It's recreating the Ponzanomics, the inflation of our traditional financial system, and crypto exchanges like, like FTX, they're actually part of the traditional financial institution. And so proof of stake and FTX exploding, these are regressive trends. We are seeing the regression back to the problems of traditional finance, in my opinion. And it's double exposure because the system incentivizes you to custodian your keys on these centralized services like FTX or Coinbase or Lido. That Then when there is a market crash, say like people are getting margin called perhaps, and everybody's trying to sell their assets so that way they can cover their calls. Well, what happens when you can't unstake, right? So it's it's like double, you're getting double screwed by these platforms because in the case of FTX for a period of time, for example, depending on when you took advantage of it, they were advertising somewhere between 5 to 8% yield if you staked your ETH. They, they kicked it off in early 2021. So before the merge happened, they started letting you put your ETH on FTX and start earning yield. And if you took advantage of that offer and you never took it off, it's gone now. You just lost your ETH. Well, how would you take it off? There is no You're right. technical You're right. way to unstake yeah. ETH. The code to unstake ETH has not been merged into Ethereum. It's a one-way function. You, you they, can't get and it they out. Did it, they did it during a bear market. And people just, they they ate it up. They ate it up. And it's during a bear market when these kinds of things are happening. That's that's like that's like if you have your Bitcoin as collateral for a loan right now, you got to try to pay it off, man. Because it, the con we don't know what the contagion story is going to be for this FTX stuff. And the price could go down. People will have to sell their Bitcoin to cover their costs. It's just going to happen. Oh, my God. I remember when the bull market was raging. Yeah. And everyone was going on to podcasts and bragging about how they refinance their mortgage yeah. so they could buy more Bitcoin at the peak of that market. Yeah. I have to admit, a part of me was like, oh, gosh, I wish I had the assets to take more leverage on this Bitcoin thing because, you know, 60K, the next stop is 200. You know, that was in the back of my mind. But another part of me thought, you guys are crazy. Like, has like we've learned that Bitcoin is the most volatile thing and you want to 
tie it to your mortgage? You want to risk your house on Bitcoin? Like, remember that guy from 2017 who mortgaged his house or whatever, did a cash out refi, got 30 or 40K out of his small house, threw it into Bitcoin at 17K, and then it just crashed down to 3K. And he was on Twitter being like, what do I do? Do I sell? I'm going to be homeless. How many people do you think Sailor convinced to take a loan out to buy Bitcoin? And honestly, Sailor might get margin called. He's not looking so yeah. smart right now. If things slide, and I don't want them to, but part of me also does. But if things slide, he's going to get margin called. And it's going to be it's going to be not only embarrassing for him, but it'll be cast as a failure. Um, also, it, you know, if anything happens with El Salvador's position, the mainstream media and probably politicians will have an absolute field day with that bad news. They will not be humble in their celebration of that at all. And there's a huge amount of risk in El Salvador's Bitcoin position from a certain perspective. So I would say El Salvador invested, if you believe what they said, less than 1% of their you know government budget. Something around 300 million, I think. That's a chunk of change, but it's not like you're betting the farm. That said, they're completely untransparent about how they did that, who they're dealing with. So, you know, that Bitcoin could walk. It could walk with the Bukele family. It could turn out that their custodian is not trustworthy because they're they're custodying it. So it's the same situation with FTX where you have to trust the custodian. And it's very likely that they are using a US-based custodian. And so you've got the president of El Salvador talking trash on Twitter and sort of presenting this you know, slightly antagonistic face to the US. And you've also got a whole bunch of assets that are being custodied by US regulated companies. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm not sure, man. I'm not sure. This kind of sounds like SBF poking the bear of CZ when he was trying to backstab him with regulatory arbitrage. Yeah, that's an interesting observation I hadn't considered is it probably very much likely is a US custodian. Oh my gosh. Yeah, there's um, some humble pie, I think, as we slide likely into a recession, if we do, and the Bitcoin price continues to be suppressed, um, there's going to be some humble pie because I think the number one theme when people thought it was going to 200, when Sailor was telling you to sell your business, to buy Bitcoin, mortgage your house to buy Bitcoin, there is no second best. He's right about the no second best part. But uh, the, the element that ironically, even Sailor missed, even though this is what brought him into Bitcoin, was the macro picture. Bitcoin is in a macro environment that is at the end of a debt cycle. And there's really nothing Bitcoin can do about it. Bitcoin technologically is fine, right? FTX being insolvent has brought the price of Bitcoin down, not because of any technical fundamental, not because of some vulnerability, not because of any kind of issue with the node software, but just simply because the market US price has come down. And that's why the Bitcoin price is down. And that will continue to be the case for a while. Macro will be in the driver's seat for a while. And I think that was the piece that everybody was missing, even though it's why Sailor bought into Bitcoin. I just think everybody got caught up in it's capable of doing this thing. And for the last decade, this is the lens in which I see everything now, Dad. For the last decade, the money was flowing. And I think people thought that was just going to be the way it was, is that was the new normal. This was how the monetary theory worked now. The money printer just keeps going. And in that environment, I likely would see asset prices continue to rise. And so therefore, Bitcoin will continue to rise. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, Bitcoin is fixed. The rules are fixed. They evolve slightly over chain over time to allow new functionality and improve Bitcoin's functioning. But the rules are essentially fixed. The only thing that is not fixed is Bitcoin's price, because the price of Bitcoin depends on demand for Bitcoin and U.S. dollar liquidity. That's it. 
Yeah. Bitcoin is static. Everything else is moving. And that's why the price is so volatile. So when Bitcoin price shoots up and down, that tells you something about the traditional financial system, less about Bitcoin. And uh, moving things are. My two last thoughts. One, I wish, part of me wishes this would have brought us some resolution with Tether. Like uh, there was some talk for a moment. Tether depegged pretty significantly for a moment. And I thought, let's flush this out because Tether to me feels like one of still the greatest risks in the crypto community. Um, and then and my second thought is I'm watching crypto.com really closely because during the bull run and leading up to the Super Bowl, they pumped and pushed their crow token so hard and they pushed it through their debit card where if you bought a crypto.com debit card, the more crow you owned in percentage to your balance, the more perks you got. And you needed to get like $5,000 worth of crow if you wanted them paying like your Netflix bill. But they had like this whole thing where they'll pay like some of your streaming services and you get something else for free and lots of goodies if you buy lots of crow and they pumped and pushed crow so hard and the price has been tanking since this ftx news and i just i guess we'll find out if crypto.com played the same games or not they may they may they may be in better shape just because they don't want to run afoul of u.s regulators but my opinion they're still playing some of that same token shenanigans and when you play token shenanigans you get burned that's right so if you've got funds on crypto.com and when it goes bankrupt and gates withdrawal if you listen to this and didn't withdraw, you're going to feel very silly. But we will help you with self-custody in our Bitcoin education segment. We do this every time there's a blow up so that people can have a friendly guide to walking through self-custody. It feels like it's probably a good time to recap some of that stuff right now. 100%. Thanks for sharing this article with me, Chris, about Google giving Solana its famous kiss of death. What is the Google kiss of death? It's when Google shows interest in your technology or project because the truth is Google does one thing well advertising and search and they're doing search less well these days and so when Google shows interest in a new side business I would say sell the news because there's a pump when that article comes out because this is going nowhere and Solana's already crashed from where it was when Google announced that they were adding Solana to their blockchain node engine which is a managed node in the Google cloud oh I see so they're trying to like dip their toes in the quote-unquote web3 world with different product offerings um yeah great google's cloud computing division now has a solana validator yay well you got to have pretty high-end resources to make it happen you got it so their node engine gives you two node options, Ethereum and Solana, which are both beefy, <laughs> beefy nodes. Running those things are going to cost serious money. Why isn't there a Bitcoin node option? Because they couldn't charge for it. You can literally run a Bitcoin node and a Lightning node happily on a Linode $5 a month nanode with like two virtual cores. And Bitcoin is super happy. It will run fine. You're going to have to pay for the storage. But in terms of actual resources, Bitcoin is so economical, so well-designed, but Ethereum and Solana, they are trash cans. They are dumpster fires. They need big servers and they need constant management. And that's why Google can make money offering this as a hosted service. And I wonder what kind of data that they can collect by running a Solana validator. And, you know, as this goes on, if they were to keep this going, you know, they'd probably build their own version so that way they could really take all the transactions apart and record everything on the blockchain, and then perhaps tie it back to your identity. Um, I mean, that's why they're 
they're doing this, right? Ultimately, I mean, they can sell it as a service too. Solana was like around $36 when Google announced this news, but thanks to just the market and FTX, as we record, Solana's at $16, which is down from its high of $250 this time last year. Of course, because Google is fundamentally a surveillance company. So if you are going to run your blockchain validator node on the platform of a surveillance company, you are completely crazy in my view. And I think that this article in our show notes is kind of helpful because at the end, there's a little video and I just want to read the title of this video. Google Cloud's Web3 lead at Mainnet 2022. The problem with crypto purity tests. Oh, crypto purity tests are a problem? I don't think so. I think crypto purity tests are pretty great. I think that whatever they're doing is by the standard of this statement, impure. And they need a lot of cover to justify running validators for garbage altcoins and charging people for that service and for the surveillance that they're inevitably doing on them. And it's incredible that they lead with this is this is their hello to the market is, the, you know, talking about purity tests in crypto. It, it feels so revealing about what they truly realize their motivations are internally. <laughs> like, oh, wow. It's so gross. You know, it's sort of fitting in a way, isn't it? It does. It kind of seems like a two peas in a pod. Should we dump on Novogratz briefly? Yeah. All right. So I know Novogratz. That's a name that rings a bell. I know he's kind of pitched himself as a crypto expert, but remind me roughly why uh, why I know the name. Novogratz is an example of a traditional financial insider who constantly fails upwards. He's the CEO <laughs> of Galaxy Digital. He's the guy right, who got right. a Luna tattoo just before Luna right. exploded. I remember now, yes. A salesman who is an absolute moron. His superpower is being an insider who people talk to with early stage ideas so that he can buy tokens early and pump and dump them. That's his superpower, nothing else. And his fund looks to have lost at least $30 million and maybe up to $75 million on FTX. So this is just a bit of schadenfreude. Novogratz, you're a joke. Feel free to come on and dispute that claim. Yeah, I wonder how it's going to go too because it looks like they're going to have to galaxy digital his firm looks like they're going to have to cut 20 percent of their global workforce that's sad and that's due to poor leadership there's been a lot of poor leadership out there and now they got to eat some humble pie and uh, novogratz says everybody's gonna have to remain nimble and agile in the coming weeks you know if you throw stuff in there like that you know like you got to be nimble and pivot and be agile then you sound like you know what you're talking about that's ceo speak right and the business types love that there's a justice department report about an action they took about about someone they call individual one. There's a incredible picture in the Ninder thread that summarizes the report. I tried to link to it via archive.ph, but the link doesn't seem to be working now. I don't know if I want to share Justice Department links. So I think you might, maybe you should get the link from this Ninder thread. But I mean, this guy's just a, a total Bitcoiner. He's like this schlub. He's wearing cargo shorts. He's on a yacht. He's got his arms <laughs> around two women in bikinis. I mean, this is the... Bitcoin OG look, you know, you're a total schlub and you just made it with Bitcoin. 
Yeah. What's interesting about this guy is, first of all, did he get his Bitcoin honestly? Well, I think that's up for debate. He discovered that the Silk Road withdrawal system did not validate withdrawals. So you could deposit 50 Bitcoin and then request 50 Bitcoin back 10 times in a row and end up with 500 Bitcoin. And the system just did that. And the fact that no one else figured this out really speaks to just how rule abiding most people are. But this individual was not, and he ended up with 50,000 Bitcoin through, I think, mainly this exploit he discovered. Is that stolen? I don't know. You know, if I discover an ATM that's just spitting out money and I stand there with an open bag, am I stealing that money? I mean, it doesn't seem like there's so much intent to break the law. You made it very easy, right? I, uh, I have trouble seeing that as a terribly evil thing to do, frankly. I think, too, it's it's a culture of poking and see what breaks back then. I mean, we still have that today to a degree, but that was so much of the culture back then is, well, all right, if I poke this, let's see what happens, because everything was so new and there were so many vulnerabilities. Right. And now we're living in a surveillance state where I think people think, well, I'm being observed constantly, so I'd better not do anything that could bite me later. I, I feel like I've heard that sentiment a lot. Also, he did a pretty uh, Chad move where he like dumped all of his Bitcoin cash and bought Bitcoin during like the right time in the market. So I think that's where some of his, and, he, and you know, the other thing too, which I, I feel like definitely deserves mention right now is he hodled through several really bad bear markets. This person did not sell hardly any Bitcoin. I mean, this is a true Bitcoin hodler. Frankly, I'm, I'm a little sad to see that the feds arrested him and threw him in a jail cell and kept him there until he gave them the keys to 50,000 Bitcoin. Because frankly, I don't quite see the argument for seizing them. They're saying that these are actually Silk Road's Bitcoins because they went through Silk Road and we're seizing them from the Silk Road. So to me, this looks like a Justice Department attack on Bitcoin property rights, basically saying, hey, if you bought a Bitcoin from Cash App, but it went through the Silk Road, we could technically steal that. That's exactly what they're saying. That is exactly what they're saying. And they have, they say, the legal standing to do it. And so they came after this guy for it. And now I don't really understand the entire story. I've read this thread, but it sounds like at some point, because this guy was a hodler since 2012, right? And then at some point during like 2019 or somewhere in that timeline, he moved some coins around and he had some he had some change end up at a wallet that was tied back to him. And so he holds this stuff since 2012, makes one transactional mistake in 2019. The feds find that on the blockchain and tie these Silk Road funds back to him. And that's the sad detail. So we don't want to do that thing where we say, oh, Oh, everything's fine. He just made a mistake. We wouldn't make that mistake because everybody makes mistakes. But had this whale coin joined and had better Bitcoin OPSEC, he would have been fine probably. So I don't think that a lot of our listeners have coins that were ill-gotten. At the same time, coin joining resets the history of Bitcoin. And you can to use tools like JoinMarket that have very few potential attack surfaces to reduce that privacy of the coin join. And, you know, that seems like a very good idea. The price is down. The cost of Bitcoin transactions is down. Learning how to use join market, which is actually, I think, comes packaged in most node in a box distros like Umbral, seems like a really good idea to me. Underscore that point. Also, in their investigation, part of what helped them track him down was the cooperation of an overseas exchange. I don't know the name. In there, they just say from a full service digital currency prime broker, quote, the exchange in the 
court filings. But, you know, let's see, again, the other thing with these exchanges is that that was the U.S. feds. Actually, was, I think in this case, it was actually the IRS at the state. The IRS got, just got cooperation from a totally non-U.S. regulated exchange. So this whole idea that, you know, if you buy from outside the U.S., you're safe. It's not it's not true. They all they all are incentivized to work together, to cooperate with each other. And that's exactly what happened here is a non-U.S. exchange cooperated with the IRS. I've never heard that idea that you're safe if you buy overseas. That's that seems really dumb to me. I think this definitely proves it. Um, I think the idea was is that, well, they're not held to the U.S. regulations. You know, the, the U.S. government can't come knock on their door, but they clearly can. So if you can find the Justice Department report, it's a long read. It's honestly, it's it's sad because uh, this person seemed like a real fun OG troll. He was trolling Roger Ver, dumping Bitcoin cash. I mean, this is all stuff we, we would have loved to do had we been there. And unfortunately, because of how we got these coins and the lack of on-chain privacy, which was not a concern back then, but has now come back to bite him, this person had all of their property seized under civil forfeiture. So just seized, you know, even if no, char- no, no charges are filed, he'll have to move heaven and earth to get his assets back. So it's an attack on property rights. And I think that we're going to see more of this going forward, because even if there isn't an official anti-Bitcoin policy, if there's a little bit of doubt about the legality of holding your own keys, I'm sure that fully custodied Bitcoin will be fine. But if people are a little uncertain because they think they know they're being observed and they know that holding your own coins is associated with Silk Road hackers and bad people, this chills that activity and it denies people Bitcoin's killer app, which is self-custody. That's the only thing that protects you in the end, I think. And as a self-custody advocate, I would say, and I'm sure you'll link to this thread, I'd say it's worth a read just from an operational security standpoint because they went and found his hardware wallets that he had hidden in his house. Um, I mean, he didn't have them like dramatically hidden, but he had them hidden, including a like in-ground safe where he had some cash too, which they also took. And um, that reading through this court case, it gives you the sense of what what they're hip to, like what they're looking for. And they can identify a Bitcoin hardware wallet and they'll just put you in prison and let you rot until you give them the key. So the best case would be to never let them find it. And the other thing too is I think just got to remember this guy ultimately had over 51,000 Bitcoin. And what screwed him was just a little bit of key management for 0.07 BTC. That's what got him. Managed to hodl 51,000 Bitcoin and 0.07 BTC is what got him when he just moved that around. So just you got to keep all of that in mind that it, it could be any amount. You really just I think it's worth a read just to get the operational security overview. I don't want to give advice because, you know, advice is always wrong in certain situations. Generally speaking, I think that someone like this who has their Bitcoin from a questionable source, they need to coin join every spend. You know, you need to throw any sort of spend through a coin join and then sell it on a decentralized market or through a in-person connection without KYC. Interacting with any sort of KYC'd exchange, which is essentially a traditional financial institution type business, means you're going to be exposed to invasive KYC. And that's just a drag net for any sort of non-standard or potentially illegal financial activity. I think the theme too that we see and when we do talk about these legal cases is years ago, they behaved in one way that perhaps they would be maybe more clever about now, but it's too late. They've already made the mistake and it just hasn't caught up to them yet until the feds go looking. And I think that's why it's like we have to stress you got to do it now. You got to get your got to get your coins off the exchanges. Now you got to use a proper wallet system now. And if you're going to, you know, if you're going to buy peer to peer, 
you probably want a coin join. If you're, you know, if you got them from a source that you can't trust, maybe just in general, you want a coin join. Like these things we have to think about now. We have to normalize them now. And it costs money. And I think that that's what really stops people from doing privacy because it costs extra money and everyone's strapped to quote Paul Storks. Everybody's broke. So you're asking me to spend money on privacy today and I don't even know if I need it. Well, here we are saying you need it. Well, here's the other big thing. And I, I think this is probably some people are listening or yelling at us about this right now. There is not really a solution to daily cash average using a peer-to-peer solution that's non-KYC. All of the automated systems are KYC. Even things like Swan Bitcoin or, or River or you know any of the exchanges, it's all KYC. And if, so if you want to save Bitcoin like a savings plan, you're forced to go that route. I mean, that's again where CoinJoin comes in, but that's an element that I think continues to force people through the traditional finance systems because it's their best way to get into Bitcoin. Yeah, 100%. It's so much more convenient and user-friendly to give up your privacy and use centralized, surveilled finance. Doing Bitcoin, running your own node, doing peer-to-peer exchange is difficult. It's time-consuming. It's scary. I remember when it was scary. I remember when every Bitcoin transaction was a palm-sweating, stressful experience. That's normal. It's not great. At the same time, every solution to this quote-unquote bad user experience involves trust and KYC and centralization. So I don't see a solution, frankly. I think the solution is to understand the really crappy financial surveillance. Uh, what's that term? It's like optometron or something. It's like we're inside a, a surveillance bubble. Sounds like a cool phrase. The issue is I perceive myself and all of us to be inside a financial surveillance bubble right now. There are multiple parties, corporations, law enforcement agencies observing our every financial move right now. And I perceive this situation to be crazy. There is the Fourth Amendment in the United States that suggests that we have some right to privacy, which would include financial privacy. And that has been obviously violated by the Bank Secrecy Act, which says that if you involve a third party in a financial transaction, you should have no right to privacy and the government should have full visibility into everyone who's interacting. This does not seem consistent with a healthy, fair, and equal society long term. And I can't make an argument that directly links financial surveillance and financial controls to increased wealth concentration, increased political concentration, and the dilution of political representation for normal people into something where at the present day, it almost feels like we don't have political representation, like we're just walking through the motions of living in a democracy. But actually, the true decision-making power is done by moneyed interests that are complicated. We don't know who their names are. We don't know what their incentives are. But they're someone else, some external insider wealthy group or uh, entities are calling the shots and we just have to go along with it. I believe there is a connection between this current state and financial surveillance. I don't know what the direct connection is, but my gut tells me that they're very related and that we can't have freedom and equality and a healthy economy before we somehow exercise financial privacy. I think that that's an important aspect of freedom. And that's why I think that the headaches and tribulations of learning how to use Bitcoin on the base chain, 
holding your own keys, exchanging peer-to-peer -peer are worth it. And these investments you make in learning this will pay huge dividends very, very soon, I believe. I agree. Well said. I hope you are right, too, in, in terms of uh, returning to the mean of privacy. I definitely hope that's true. Unless Bitcoin's dead. You know, I read this week that Bitcoin's just totally dead, so it's probably not going to happen. Ooh, this was a duty. It's such a bad article. Why are we boosting this signal? You know, because I think sometimes you like to uh, be a little contrarian and uh, push back on some of these. And I think it's good to look at criticism in the face and have answers for some of it. And one that I think is the top of this article, I should mention this, Ann Gal does this every year. It's like a yearly thing to get clicks. But she hits us right where it's soft from the beginning. And that is the minor capitulation that we're seeing as the Bitcoin price begins to decline. And this is actually a resurrection of an old piece of Bitcoin FUD, which is the minor death spiral. She's saying that Miners are failing. This is going to lead to more centralization of miners and less chain security. And this is just going to be so bad for Bitcoin. Yeah, it's just a completely fallacious argument. It's been said at every bear market. And what generally happens is, yes, the big miners today go bankrupt and their machines are sold at fire sale prices, which distributes them to companies and individuals who are small today and then become big in the next market. Then they get too big and then Bitcoin slays them again. That's the pattern we've seen. It reminds me of the email, I think it was, or a boost that you and I got weeks and weeks and weeks ago when the market was in a way different place. And the person was concerned about consolidation of Bitcoin mining. And you and I both had this answer of like, don't worry, these things, they're cycles. They have a way of kind of coming and going. And we're exactly watching that process now. And it is hard for those companies, but it is healthy for Bitcoin. There's also the Bitcoin brain drain thesis. The top ranks of the Bitcoin community are podcasters and boomers like Sailor. The top ranks of every other chain are engineers and entrepreneurs. And this is frankly nonsense. It's true that there are a lot of boomers and financiers and culture war proponents who are noisy in the Bitcoin space. They don't make the rules. They don't make consensus. And if you, as you will hear in our soon to be released interview with Hunter, the majority of development is happening on Bitcoin. All of these other projects, they literally survive by marketing. That is their killer app is marketing to generate hype for an illiquid, worthless token. Yeah. Every time a developer makes a commit, they're shouting on Twitter and on Medium about how they're doing so much development. 90% of the development is on Bitcoin. The other 10% is split across thousands of garbage altcoin chains. <laughs> Do the math. Yep. And the quality of code is so different, right? The process to get something significant committed to Bitcoin is one of the highest bars I think I have ever seen in free software development. It's a higher bar than getting code in the Linux kernel by a mile. On top of that, it's the exact opposite of all the altcoins, which are trying to move really fast to stay competitive. And they're sucking in code like a Hoover vacuum. Anybody that writes a patch, they'll, they'll, they'll take it because they're growing and trying to add features to be competitive, primarily with Ethereum. And the reality is the code quality is much lower and that's an objective analysis that can be done and has been done. Also, apparently BTC maxis are becoming multi-coiners because Nick Carter is no longer a Bitcoin maxi. Also, I think Will Clemente is someone you knew about who's also covering altcoins now. These yeah. people were never Bitcoin maxis. And also, I don't even know what that term means. It was a slur that Vitalik came up with. Nick Carter is a venture capitalist. He invests in Bitcoin projects and also garbage altcoin projects. 
projects. He's always done this and he's been open about it. Yeah. And Will's a young kid who just started a business and needs places to put money and has things to sell. Like it, all of this is their own incentives and does not indicate anything. If anything, she's kind of been caught up in this sort of Twitter culture echo chamber that that kind of makes this maxi war seem like some sort of thing that actually matters in Bitcoin. Absolutely. It just doesn't matter. Because her next point is that you'll get shunned if you develop on Bitcoin. And her example is, oh, no, the founder of Bitcoin Layer 2 Stacks has been so abused by Bitcoiners on Twitter just because he wants to make NFTs and DeFi on Bitcoin. Okay, if she's being honest here, she has no idea what Stacks actually is. Stacks is a infinite Ponzi scheme that attempts to affinity scam with Bitcoin. It is such an obviously garbage product. Miami coin, that scammy Miami cryptocurrency went to zero when it was built on Stacks. That's kind of all you need to know about Stacks. So yeah, she's really digging here. Stacks is a garbage project. And she makes a comparison. She says, quote, interestingly enough, Lightning Network is not Bitcoin as much as Stacks, yet receives a more favorable response. That's a, That's an apples to oranges comparison. I don't understand what she's saying. How is Lightning Network not Bitcoin? Is this just too dumb to understand? I don't know. That's my point. It's like she seems to misunderstand that you send sats over the Lightning Network. Lightning Network is a communications network that is channels that are established between nodes, and then you send sats through channels. Like, that's Bitcoin. I don't know. <laughs> but yet, they're qualified to write a yearly critique of Bitcoin. Right. And then she thinks that Ethereum is going to be flippening Bitcoin. That's an old one. No. Goodness, this hasn't aged well in the day or two since it's been published. <laughs> I wonder if she's just brushing this off from last year and just stop updating it because that's last year's meme. Anyway, the point is that you're going to hear a lot of criticism of Bitcoin during the bear market. I think that most of it comes from shallow thinkers who haven't done the deep dive because why would they? I mean, once you do the deep dive, you never go back. No one's ever done the research on Bitcoin, gone all the way in, used it peer to peer, and then been, this sucks. I'd rather use Cash App. No one has right. ever done that. Show me that person. <laughs> And, and I will change my view. But I've never yeah. encountered someone who did the research, got into Bitcoin, and then thought, man, this, this just doesn't work. No, no yeah. one's ever yeah. concluded that. Once you go Bitcoin, you don't go back. The thing is, is I think you're going to hear people that are a little more, they're going to step up. They're kind of anti-crypto, quote unquote, when they'll they'll just include Bitcoin in there. I've I've had some friends, even in the last couple of days, razz me and tell me that they know Bitcoin's going to zero and that the whole thing's done. And that, you know, if you look at the price chart, you know, it's never coming back up. And I'd suggest we just give them all grace. It's pretty understandable to think all of this is just a scam or a Ponzi or a bubble, because when you have people... People like SBF that were put forward as legitimate actors in the space, perhaps even pitched as geniuses and called the next Warren Buffett by the uh, trade magazines. And they, they build the number three crypto exchange, which is kind of the front of quote unquote crypto to the average person are these exchanges, especially the ones that advertise on the Super Bowl. And they can just collapse in a matter of hours. And then all of this crap about them comes out. Yeah, it looks it looks really bad. And I think it's pretty understandable that people that have a lot going on in their lives would look at just this whole category and go, what a joke. Anybody that thinks that's legit is a fool and just write it off. I believe they're making a mistake. In fact, I believe these are the times when people need to be savvy investors and look at which assets are actually pristine and which ones are crap and, you know, buy up while they can. But I understand that they don't see it that way. And especially after the events of FTX and SBF. And I think we're just going to have to live with that for a while. And the price is going to go down. And whenever this has been true for like the 12 years I've been in Bitcoin, whenever the price goes down, people really start harping on it. They really, you know, like, 
every every doubter that's ever said anything that might possibly go wrong with Bitcoin basically turns into Peter Schiff and comes out and starts making their case why Bitcoin's dead. And you just got to live with it. Don't let it don't let it hit you. Just let it roll off and just keep in mind that the fundamentals of Bitcoin are great. And in fact, this is pretty healthy. We're working out scammers. The mining load is getting redistributed. You can stack sats for a great price. The technology continues to get built. Development proceeds. Well said. But global central bankers have not gotten the memo. There's a quite chart-heavy piece from S&P Global Market Intelligence, which basically examines the strength of the dollar versus other fiat currencies. What's also interesting is that it looks at the foreign exchange reserves. These are basically the dollars, quote-unquote, held in reserve by foreign central banks like Japan and China over this period. And it notices that these reserves are dipping slightly, but not as aggressively as you would think if these countries are trying to, quote-unquote, defend their currency against the dollar by selling the dollars they own to buy their own currency, which, uh, interestingly enough, was actually the mechanism by which FTX attempted to create value in the FTT token. They would buy I was just thinking that. some every week. Yeah, It feels like there was a bit of a parallel there. <laughs> I know. Nice how that worked out. The TLDR is that when the dollar strengthens and the U.S. raises interest rates, the only way that you can, quote unquote, protect your currency against a weakening dollar is to raise your interest rates higher than the Federal Reserve so that your country is offering crazy high interest rates on their government debt. And this attracts foreign capital because these financial flows are the biggest movements in the euro dollar system into your company to buy your debt and this pumps your currency and then things stabilize. But this is not possible because at this point in late stage euro dollar history, the government debt to GDP of every developed country is basically over 100%. Most are over 120%. And this is the end game. This is the debt insolvency crisis, which no one can walk away from. And that means that as interest rates rise on government borrowing, this debt burden becomes becomes less and less sustainable because as interest rates remain high, more and more debt has to be rolled over, basically paid off and borrowed again at a higher interest rate. And this eats into the government budget. And that means you start have to cutting the military, cutting health care, cutting unemployment, cutting all the things that people vote for and people elect their politicians to provide. And that means that it's just politically impossible to do this kind of government government austerity. And so the world is stuck with currencies depreciating against the dollar, the dollar strengthening, and it just doesn't look too good for anybody because the U.S. also depends on foreign interest in their products and their financial markets. And so the U.S. killing the rest of the world economically with a strong dollar doesn't even help the U.S. in the end. It's just a bad situation all around for which there is no silver lining. Yeah, I was sitting there listening thinking, okay, What's the silver line? What's the silver line? And I just couldn't find it. None. There is none. The thing that strikes me about this um, is, and it's not directly related, but it, I've noticed that people really seem to think that the Federal Reserve is going to come out any week now and say, all right, we're all done. We're done raising interest rates. We're turning the money printer back on. Because when we get, like we did just a couple of days ago, an updated CPI number and the CPI number is slightly down, we see the markets just rally like insane. Uh, Apple Apple just added billions yesterday, um, just absolutely 
absolute rallying because they assume this is the message that the feds are going to stop. But when I watch Jerome Powell up there, he's clearly saying that they're going to continue to raise interest rates for a while. They may raise them at a slower rate. So maybe instead of 75 basis points, it's 50 basis points. But it sounds like they're going to keep going for a bit. And I just it seems like people just refuse to accept that fact or they just don't believe it's possible because because the the cost of, you know, for the military budgets, the everything, all the budgets, you know, everything gets hit. Plus, you do it during a recession when tax revenues are down, like just seems like a double whammy. But we really we really seem to be out of options. And the markets keep betting that we're going to go back to the way things were before the pandemic. And we're clearly not, is my two cents. But if you want to look back briefly to a time before FTX, when Terra Luna exploding was the biggest blow up in crypto history, you should check out Lynn Alden's Digital Alchemy article. I think we shared it before when she put it out. Yeah. And this is a really interesting read because it basically talks about the category error I keep on bringing up. There's this idea that cryptocurrencies are kind of like Bitcoin, but with additional features. And Lynn demonstrates with data that that is not the case. The behavior of Bitcoin, the behavior of Bitcoiners is completely different than the behavior of other cryptocurrencies. I think this is a must read if you're feeling confused in the midst of the FTX explosion because it will help explain how most crypto projects are various forms of rehypothecated leverage and that's exactly what blew up with FTX and Terra and Luna and Three Arrows Capital and the list goes on. And well Celsius had the sell token. They also were doing the token shenanigans. The other fun thing is the top 10 cryptocurrencies from 2017 and the top 10 from 2013. There's a story here. Basically when you fall out of the top Top 10, you disappear forever. There is only one story, uh, one co- one coin that bucks that trend. Do you know which one I'm thinking of, Chris? Hmm. Well, clearly it's Litecoin. XRP. <laughs> oh, really? Goddamn XRP. <laughs> the biggest scam in the space. But so yeah. connected to regulators, so much yep. incestuous relationship with traditional finance. It's just disgusting. And it's amazing. They've just they've, they've got people that just cling on and believe that, you know, they're going to win their fight with the SEC any moment. And then XRP is going to take off. They literally might win their case against the SEC. Yep. That is how incompetent the traditional financial system is at policing itself. Wow. Well, check back in the year and see where everything's at, I suppose. I think I'm just going to read this quote from Arthur's latest blog post. This is, of course, Arthur Hayes, the founder of BitMEX, one of the founders of BitMEX, which used to be the big offshore derivatives Bitcoin casino before FTX usurped that throne. So I think Arthur has been a little salty at FTX. I would be. But that incentive leads for a very schadenfreude article about how FTX blew up. It covers a lot of the points we've made. But I just want to read these tweets from Caroline Ellison, the CEO of Alameda, which was the hedge fund owned by Sam Bankman-Fried that was uh, likely uh, went insolvent during the three Eros Capital and Celsius crash. And then FTX bailed out with customer funds, which then led to FTX also going insolvent this week. I believe also uh, SBF's roommate and former lover. She wrote this on April 5th, 2021. So this was a year ago. Nothing like regular amphetamine use to make 
make you appreciate how dumb a lot of normal, non-medicated human experience is. God, this sounds like someone I want to manage $16 billion of capital. The second dumbest thing is, apparently, there's about 20% of my brain that's dedicated to food. She goes on talking about food, and then she says, Ethiopian food. Do they even have that in Hong Kong? Caroline, if you're talking about doing amphetamines in Hong Kong, you are like courting a death sentence. Good lord. What an idiot. And no one cared. No one cared about this tweet until Alameda and FTX exploded. Yeah. Well, and apparently everybody knew they were living together. Uh, I guess FTX staff have been talking about it openly on Twitter. I mean, there's clear blurring of the lines right there. So you got to figure there was financial blurring too. This thread that you're reading now, if you actually read it the way she composed it and, and don't like stop for commentary, it reads as like a high ramble. She starts out by talking about how anybody who isn't using amphetamines is not operating at the same level she is. She calls them dumb. Then she continues for two more threads to just kind of randomly talk about food. I mean, it's clearly just like the type of thing that when you're that kind of stone, you probably shouldn't get on Twitter. Plus, there, like you mentioned earlier, there's videos of her talking about how they don't really bother with risk management because their superpower is basically taking on risk that other people won't take. Right. Like uh, my favorite money manager, Kathy Woods of ARK Invest. If Kathy had retired in 2021, she would have retired the greatest money manager of all time. But she stayed into 2022 when the world moved to risk off and she got wrecked. And now she's a joke. That's the beauty of the last 10 years. Degenerate risk takers, some of them were rewarded. And everyone else who wanted a more reasonable financial world, more reasonable investments were completely trashed along the way. Hard to, hard to countenance. This week, we want to mention the Adopting Bitcoin conference that's happening November 15th, 16th, and 17th in El Salvador. If you use the promo code Bitcoin Dad, you get a 21% discount. Of course, it's 21%. Now, I know it's coming up soon. So this is really just a PSA that if you want to go say hi to the Bitcoin Dad, go to the Adopting Bitcoin conference. You just got to get over to El Salvador. How do they know it's you, though? Will you wave somehow? You'll be wearing a Bitcoin Dad shirt? I think I have a Bitcoin Dad shirt. I'll try to wear it. You can generally notice me because you'll recognize my voice, and I also have a few panels where I'll be talking about scaling on Bitcoin, another panel about tokenizing government debt and how that might look in the future. And apropos to our education section, I'll be running a workshop on Bitcoin self-custody and wallet generation. So if those sound interesting and worth a conference ticket and plane ticket, please come and say hi. I'd love to hang out in El Salvador. I imagine the weather's pretty pretty nice next week. I know you mentioned this earlier, but we have some very timely Bitcoin education this week. We need to talk about self-custody again. When exchanges and custodians blow up, there's always people who have been putting off self-custody and they need to know how to do it now. And so I think, Chris, that we should focus on self-custody using a personal computer. What do you think? Yeah, that sounds smart. I know some people like to do do like mobile devices and or a cold, a cold wallet. I love the cold card. But the best way to get started would just be with your PC, I suppose. Are you thinking a dedicated Bitcoin only PC? Frankly, no, because right now you need to move fast. So don't create a barrier by setting up a new PC. What I want you to do is go to your existing computer, be it Mac, Windows, or Linux, and create a new user. So create a new user with a password. You could call that user Bitcoin, and you just log in as that user, and and you'll have a, a, a clean desktop. Not a lot of applications installed for that user, 
depending on how you structure your operating system, not a lot of files in that user's folder. And now we're going to install Sparrow Wallet. What do you think of that, Chris? Yes, absolutely love Sparrow Wallet. Sparrow Wallet is a Bitcoin wallet that can work with your own node. It can work with a third-party node. Right now, we're not going to worry about setting up your own node. If you have one, you can point Sparrow Wallet at it. If you don't, don't let that be a barrier to self-custody. It is better to self-custody and lose some privacy on chain. I mean, if your coins are on an exchange, you have zero privacy right now. So (laughs) moving them to your own wallet, it gives you custody, but no privacy. So it's a net improvement. You know, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I want to make a, a, a just an acknowledgement that when I when I first discovered Sparrow, I thought, oh, this UI is a little more complicated than just about every other software wallet out there. Well, not that's not true, but a lot of them. But what comes across as perhaps complication at first is actually really valuable information. Sparrow Wallet shows you things and visualizes things for you that I think are actually really good for you to know. And they do all of it really, really well in the, they cover all of it really well in the docs. They just have great documentation. You can read through there and, and they'll, they'll really kind of help you understand everything that's happening in the UI and which screens do what. And they have great install directions. You just go to sparrowwallet.com. You click on the download button. You're now in sparrowwallet.com slash download. And they have installation packages for both types of Mac, Intel and M1, M2. They've got Windows. They've got a Windows standalone app that you don't don't even have to install. You can just run it. They have all the Linux distros. Shout out to Red Hat. Shout out to Debian. Shout out to Atar.gz binary that you don't even need to install. Nice. Very nice. And they also have instructions on verifying the release. This is really important to get into the habit of verifying the release. A lot of people who lose their coins, it's because they downloaded an Electrum wallet from a link and then they put their seed into it and then their coins are gone. Because yes, if someone shares a malicious wallet, they can steal all your Bitcoin. Are you afraid? You should be, but you don't have to be because if you follow the instructions on sparrowwallet.com download to verify your release, you will be 100% sure that this is the right software and it's not going to screw you. I like it. I agree. Now, I think there's an, there's one element to this that is still tricky for people and it, it impacts this show because it involves boosting. Sparrow does not deal with lightning at all. You have to come up with other solutions to get your Bitcoin on the lightning network. So just keep that in mind. And I really wish it did because that's how I'd like to move my funds into my wallet, honestly, is I'd like to send it over the Lightning Network and then move it into my wallet. I think that'd be fantastic. But alas, it does not support Lightning. You'll have to come up with another solution for that. That's a good point. Sparrow Wallet does one thing really, really well, which is on-chain Bitcoin. And if you have got funds on an exchange, what you need right now is to custody those funds on-chain. I think Sparrow Wallet on the desktop is what you need. Now, once you have it installed, you just click it open. You're going to create a wallet. It's going to show you some words, I think 12 or 24 words. You need to write those down on paper. Oh my God, do not take a photo. Do not take a photo with your iPhone and back it up on iCloud. Those seed words will be stolen. All your Bitcoin in that wallet will be stolen. You write down the words on paper. You fold that piece of paper. You put it in an envelope. You never show it to anybody. You never show it to a camera. You never hold it in front of a webcam. Does your computer have a built-in webcam on the screen? Then that means that seed phrase can never be held in front of that computer. Okay, just a couple things to think about. Those words must be a secret because the way Bitcoin works is you own Bitcoin if you know this secret. Fundamentally, that's what's going on here. So you must must keep this secret a secret.
And there's tools you can get online, several metal plates where you can etch in your seed phrase and then maybe make a couple of copies of those and store them somewhere safe. There is some great reviews if you go Googling online of people that try like burning these things. They put them through all kinds of torture tests to see which seed plates, as they're called, hold up. And I, my recommendation is do not put that anywhere digital. Just that's the line. Just don't store it. Keep your seed phrase in the analog world and keep it somewhere safe. That's how the Bifinex hackers got their fun stolen by the cops. They backed up their seed phrase to a Dropbox or something. Yeah. Google Drive or Dropbox. It's no good. Like you were saying, the picture, that's no good. Especially now that all these services and phones do character recognition. Uh, it's, it's just no good. And the beautiful the beautiful thing about Sparrow is as you become more involved with Bitcoin, if you want to like later get into coin joins or if you want to later get a cold wallet, Sparrow will work with you. It'll kind of grow with you as you as you move into those things. Again, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. If you don't have a seed plate at home, that's no reason not to take self-custody. Write it down on paper, put it in an envelope. I don't think your house is going to burn down tomorrow. It's going to be fine. But honestly, you can find those. I mean, I agree. I'm not disagreeing. But you can also just get those off of Amazon or something. You know, you can they're not hard to find. But yeah, just just to back it off in the back it up in the analog world is all we're saying. Even if it's on paper that you put in an envelope and put in a drawer somewhere. Remember, you can always get in touch with the show at BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter. Consider joining our show Matrix channel using a client like Element that can be downloaded on your phone or on your desktop or even in a web browser. And our channel is graciously hosted by Jupiter Broadcasting, Chris's podcast empire, which didn't get an ad this week. So just want to mention, Chris, thanks for the hundreds of Bitcoin you've invested in this super high production quality <laughs> you know what? show. You might, shoot, you might be onto something there. If you, if you consider the Bitcoin I lost research and development for content. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Didn't mean to bring that up. <laughs> you can also support the show with a podcasting 2.0 app, such as Fountain.fm, Podverse, which does require connecting Albi, the online web wallet, to Podverse. So there's a step there. Or Castomatic on Apple. I like the Albi setup. Also, you could use Albi in conjunction with Sparrow. I mean, they don't directly link, but um, Sparrow is often my savings account. Albi could be your checking account, your spending sets. The nice thing about doing it in Albi with, with Podverse is then you're not setting up a wallet never. Every single app you use um, and Albi's open source seems to be a good team but uh, yeah i like Albi, and i think if you work the two well to get if you use the two together they work well like podverse and Albi or sparrow and Albi. it's nice and people send us some boosts with those podcasting 2.0 apps and our first one came in from patar 7777 sats i like that zero people are upset that things are on lightning are getting broken everyone sees this as uncomfortable but a necessary learning experience to make the network stronger in the long run here here let's break it now that's right it's it's like fdi you want to pull the Band-Aid off quickly and soon. Yeah, before they get even more users. Rusta Costa Versa boosts in a thousand sats. Wasn't aware how app-specific character sets are. I don't have any in Fountain. Chapters. Chapters are. We oh, were talking chapters about chapters are. last week. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's hit and miss for me in Fountain. Um, and I don't know why. I think maybe it might be that Fountain only supports cloud chapters versus embedded in the ID3 information. But it seems like embedded in the ID3 information is actually the superior way to go because it requires no cloud connectivity to be read by the client. But they have to write that support into Fountain. I may have that backwards. I'm not sure. But I've noticed it's hit and miss. Yeah, and that's a very small team at Fountain. I think it's three developers. So not surprised. I have a call scheduled with them next week. So I'll try to that'll try to be one of the things I... I 
I asked him. Oh, that's awesome. I think you should take this next boost because this is like an ongoing conversation you two have been having. Yeah. So we received 5,000 sats from just a Stefan. I'm glad Tur was able to do some therapy and meet his wife in the free domain community. For context, free domain is the online cult run by Stefan Molyneux. And for listeners just teaming in, we've had a ongoing conversation with listeners of the podcast who seem to be involved with Stefan Molyneux and seek to promote his ideas via our podcast uh, through boosting. So this is interesting because it's kind of a free speech versus censorship versus if you boost in, do you always get read versus whatever is, you know, because essentially Stefan Molyneux, from my perspective, is just a really terrible, toxic individual. I mean, the Southern Poverty Law Center has a whole page, which I've shared before, about the various racist and sexist and horrible things Stefan Molyneux has done. So, you know, when you're on the S list of the Southern Poverty Law Center, I I mean, you're a bad guy. If you're on the the bad side of the Southern Poverty Law Center, there is a very small chance that you are a good actor. But Steph Steph and StephBot just keep on boosting it. So we'll continue, I guess. StephBot continues. I also met my wife of 10 years after doing a lot of self-therapy and help from Molly News shows. I believe minimizing child abuse within the home is essential for a peaceful future. I mean, yeah, of course. Like, I don't understand why this is like a big revelation. Don't take my or Steph's word for it, though. See Lloyd de Massieu's book, The Origins of War and Child Abuse, or Harvard Research on Spanking. So I'm not sure who Lloyd de Massieu is. Unfortunately, I don't have time to look into this book. I think that Steph Bott and Stephen Molyneux, if they're speaking out against child abuse, that's great. I don't think it's a good idea to hit children. I have a child. I would never hit my child. At the same time, just because you say something that's reasonable and obviously true, like child abuse is wrong, does not make you a good person because the issue is what the goal of your communication is. In Stefan Molyneux's case, and as Stefan mentions, uh, Tor Demeester, who's a well-known Bitcoiner who would probably uh, agree with me on this, Stefan Molyneux seeks to isolate listeners to his online cult from their families so that he can financially exploit them. And he seems to be someone with a real power trip. So, you know, StephBot, thanks for the boost. I really appreciate you supporting the show. At the same time, I just, I don't see the point in promoting Stefan Molyneux and Boost because I don't think anyone listening to me being critical of the individual you're promoting is going to have them show interest in Stefan Molyneux. I don't think anything attractive about him comes out via this Boost conversation. So, you know, if possible, I'd love to hear your views on the Lightning Network, on Bitcoin, maybe some economics, stuff like that that I feel more qualified to discuss and have a conversation on. Sir Lurkslot comes in with some seriously elite sats, 13,370, and they were sent via Boost CLI. Whoa, buddy, he says. Bitcoin is down to 16K as I write this. Yeah, down there again. The sat sale just keeps getting better and better. (laughs) You're dang right, Lurks a lot. Uh, He says, still having lots of hangups, buying more than small amounts via RoboSats. Usually it's Zelly's fault. Have you actually completed a BISC trade yet? I'm getting BISC curious over here. Pew, pew. Oh, Lurks a lot. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. Yeah, I did the other day. And, you know, when I get back from El Salvador, I'll walk you through how that goes and how to do it. Because BISC is, you know, it's a completely different interface. Uh, Takes some time, uh, but it's, it's great. 
I agree that RoboSats, you know, uh, commonly, it's like the most you could buy at a time is $500 worth. I'm never really looking to buy more than probably like 100 bucks worth with RoboSats. So it does work out pretty well for me. But I took a little looky while the market was going crazy this week and the price was dropping like crazy. And there was only three people on RoboSats in the U.S., at least on, in my book. Um, so sometimes it's not like, again, it's like not the place to get like the real active price, you know, like you get the best price or whatever, especially because there's usually a little bit of a markup on RoboSats for the you know benefit of it. Um, but the price, I think, is going to be low for a while, I would suspect. So you'll probably get your chance. He followed up with another elite set of sats, 1337. To follow up, I've de-Googled via Graphene OS, but I failed to get a strike account approval. I've got no cash app, so it's just been Zelly, which is a bit of a sad trombone for my RoboSat trades. There's strict limits per month with Zelly. Yuck. Nobody wants to buy Amazon cards for me for BTC, so I'm not having any luck with that. Yeah, that comes and goes, you know, when people... So on RoboSats, you basically have your choice of payment options for for a seller. You can choose Cash App, Amazon gift cards, uh, Zelly, PayPal, pretty much anything that people use to send money on the internet you can use. And so it's up to the seller which service they want to use. And as a buyer, you can filter based on what payments they're willing to receive. But, you know, if they're if they're not willing to use an Amazon gift card, for example, then you're SOA. Well, thanks for those sats, sir. Lurks a lot. I'm another big fan of Graphene OS. It's a de-Googled Android phone operating system that runs on the Google Pixel Pixel series of phones. I think it's really great. And if you have a Pixel or you're interested in a more private cell phone, you should definitely check out Graphene. Smart Growth boosts in 5,000 sats. Thank you so much. Still listening while moving pigs at Smart Growth Smart Growth Farm. Was this <laughs> the booster who shared a link to their farm where you can buy local meat directly? Yeah, and they have a website, smartgrowthfarm.com. Um, they were listening to a few episodes back in the catalog, I noticed, on their boost. Jeez, uh, the prices look great. These, are, these are look like great prices. Ground beef, seven bucks for a pound. Ground lamb is a little more expensive. Ooh, ground lamb is so tasty. Well, I, I buy meat directly from my local farmer, and it's a great, uh, fun experience. It's a little different because it's hard to calculate the price. I've done it a few times, and in the end, it's the same price or cheaper than buying organic uh, ground beef at Costco. And but it's complicated because you pay the farmer for the weight of the cow, then you pay the butcher a butchering fee based on the hanging weight of the processed carcass, and then there might be another fee too. So when I first did it, I was kind of stressed. I was like, oh, I got to calculate all of this. I have to know exactly how much it costs. And the thing is, when we buy meat by the pound in the supermarket, that's at the end of the supply chain. And so like when you go deeper at an earlier stage in the meat processing cycle, you can't get that clean pricing because there's there's kind of wastage and slippage depending on the structure of the meat as it's being processed. So some animals yield more meat, some animals yield less. And I think for big supermarkets and stuff, they're buying like hundreds or thousands of cows at the same time, so they can average it out. But for individuals, there's going to be variation. And I would say, don't worry about it. Buying local is such good, delicious, healthy food. It's great quality. Go for it if you can. You feel good doing it. Too. Neural P boosts in with 12,000 sats. I love the mix of topics and your traditional finance lens. Thanks for the great show. Well, thank Thanks you. Thanks for the sats. And Thought Criminal Busin, great name, 1,999 sats. Legalized corruption in the form of lobbying leads to corporate price gouging and creates inflationary pressure. Someone needs to tell Congress about this because they seem stumped. Well, I... <laughs> 
totally, totally agree there. We had a Washington State Senate candidate for Bitcoin, Brian Solston, but Brian told me that he's taking a break temporarily to finish his Bitcoin book. So I don't know when he's going to be out on the campaign trail again, but he's a great guy. And I think over time, we'll have more Bitcoin positive politicians who hopefully are more down to earth and in line with American values as they exist in your yeah. mind. Baffo boosts in with 6,670 sats. Just simply says, Baffo send good boost. Baffo do send good boost. And C-dubs came in with 10,101 sats. And just a big old boost. Thank you to the both of you. And our last boost comes from Rapid Mustang with a row of ducks, 2,222 sats. I'll give you guys my very first boost. Wow. First boost. Learning a lot, so thanks for all the work you put into this smiley face. And thank you so much for your first boost. That's really meaningful. Congrats, Rapid Mustang. Welcome to the Lightning Network. If you want to send a second boost, I'd be curious to know what stack you use to get the sats and then get them into your Lightning wallet and all of that. Because I've been experimenting recently with uh, different services and uh, spending sats and all that kind of stuff. So I'm always curious what everybody's using. If you'd like to send a boost in, go get a new podcast app. Upgrade to a podcasting 2.0 compatible app at newpodcastapps.com. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, November 11th, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here as always with me, Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time. <laughs>